Leonard Wolf was an author and publisher and editor, worked in a large publishing firm. He wrote these words, looking back on his life. He said, I see clearly that I have achieved practically nothing. The world today and the history of the human anthill, that's an interesting expression for our lives. The world today in the history of the human anthill during the past five to seven years would be exactly the same if I had played ping pong instead of sitting on committees and writing books and memoranda. I have therefore to make a rather ignominious confession that I have in a long life ground through between 150,000 and 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Well, there's a pleasant thought. Do you ever feel that way about life? 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. Well, vanity of vanities, the author of Ecclesiastes said in the Old Testament. Life is uselessness of uselessnesses. We crave more, don't we? We want to be significant. Why? Because God made us to be significant. In the search for intelligent life in the universe, Lily Tomlin's character says, I've always wanted to be somebody, but I see now I should have been more specific. (laughs) Well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we were made to be significant. We were supposed to be something more specific than that. We were made to be somebodies in the kingdom of God. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning as we pick up our study. We are appointed by God to rule the coming world. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. For he did not, that is, God did not subject to angels the world to come, the coming world, concerning which we are speaking. That's what we're talking about, the author of Hebrews says. And he did not put angels in charge of the world to come. Now the author of Hebrews is saying in a rather backhanded way, or leading into what he is going to say, he didn't put angels in charge of the world to come, he put humans in charge of the world to come. Angels were not made to rule the coming world, but we were made to rule the coming world. That's what I'm talking about, he says here in Hebrews chapter 2. God's kingdom is coming to earth. We will rule in God's kingdom. We were made to be significant. Everyone in this room was made to be significant. And that's the good, good news. One element of the gospel, one that we don't often talk about perhaps, or we don't talk about enough. It's not just that his blood saved us and forgave us and cleansed us of our sins, but one element of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we were made to be significant in the kingdom of God. We were, and we will find, our significance only in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So let's walk through 
his argument here in Hebrews chapter 2. We were made by God to rule the world, first of all. Beginning in verse 5, For he did not subject angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere. Now the author of Hebrews didn't forget who had written these words. It's just his style. He likes to introduce his scripture references this way. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him. And we have to stop right there because... The, uh, the grammar actually stops us right there. We go into a new segment of thought. But we'll stop right there and talk about this concept here. And one of the problems we have when we look at this passage in Hebrews 2 in understanding it is that we immediately think of Jesus Christ. And we immediately think that the author of Hebrews is talking about Christ, that this is a messianic passage. We think of the passage as pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, it is pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ as the representative man. He starts out talking about us. He only gets to Jesus down in verse 9. All right? The author of Hebrews is not talking about Jesus Christ in these verses. He is talking about us and our place in the cosmos of God. He's talking about our place in God's creation and how Christ entered our world to lead us to a new world where we will rule as God intended us to rule in His cosmos. What leads us astray, one of the things, is our understanding of the expression Son of Man in verse 6. We see the word Son of Man and we think of Jesus. Because that was Jesus' favorite expression for himself. He was the Son of Man. We forget that the word Son of Man was used in the Old Testament for humans. Ezekiel is called the Son of Man. It's his favorite expression for himself. It's a human term. The point of the term Son of Man is not so much deity or divinity. It is humanity. Jesus liked the term Son of Man because as God, He left His throne in heaven. He left all of that and He became Son of Man. He entered into our humanity. So the term Son of Man is first and foremost about humans. And God uses it, Jesus uses it, to describe His role in entering into the human realm. It's God description, God's description about humans, first of all. And God identified ultimately with, him, with humans in all of that. The author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is not a messianic passage. Psalm 8, in fact, the Jewish leaders never considered Psalm 8 to be a messianic psalm. Psalm 8 is a psalm about the universe and man's place in the cosmos. It is a psalm about the grandeur of this universe that God created and how God placed man in this universe to rule it. Man's role is in this universe is lower than the angels right now. 
but we were made to be rulers of this cosmos. The author of Hebrews will argue that Jesus Christ, as a perfect representative man, will lead us back to our rightful place in God's cosmos. When I consider your heavens, going back to Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the psalmist writes, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. When I look at the stars, when I look at this incredible universe, why, God, would you care about little old me? That's what the psalmist is saying. Why are we even important to you? Look at all that, that out there. It's, it's magnificent. Why do you care about us, God? But you do. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? Psalm 8 is about God's creative work and man's place in that creation. And people say, look at the universe. It's egotistical to think that humans are so important. No, it's theological because God made us that way. Even in all of that. That's the point of Psalm 8. When we compare ourselves to angels... The author says, not just to the, not to the stars and the moon, but when we compare ourselves to angels, you made us a little lower than the angels in, in terms of the fact that they're spirit beings, we're physical, they can go anywhere in this universe. We're limited to earth. They're immortal, we're mortal. So we're a little lower than the angels. But you crowned us with glory and honor. For we are the crowning aspect of this creation. We are made in the image of God. Angels are not. And ultimately, we will be greater than the angels. So, in all of this creative work of God, here is man. And this is man's place. God considers men and women, humans, to be very, very important. We are special to God. He has crowned us with glory and honor. He has made us special to Him, even though in comparison to all of these other elements of His creative work, we seem so tiny and weak in this cosmos. You made him, he continues in Psalm 8, you made him, that is man, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You made us to rule. God put us on this earth and he, he made us rulers of this earth. He placed the animals and the fish and the birds under our authority. God made earth a little tiny orb in the midst of the vast expanse of the universe. And God placed us on earth as the kings of his creation. God made us to rule this world. Built into us by God's creative power is this sense of significance, this sense of rulership. We know it. We were made for more than 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. 
Right? That's instinctive in us because God put it in us. We know we were more made to be more important than the animals and the birds and the fish. We were made to rule. In this entire incredible cosmos, we are special to God. And that is absolutely mind-boggling. Now we can take it one step farther back in the scriptures. At creation in Genesis 1, we were told, so God created man in his own image. That's not true of angels, by the way. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves upon the ground. Many today want to tell us that we are just like all the other animals in this cosmos. You know? We're just an animal ourselves. There's no real difference between us and and dogs or horses or lions or whatever your favorite one is. We could just as easily be living on the planet of the apes, where apes rule and men are pets, according to many people today. And it leads to, quite frankly, what is a a horrible, wacky environmentalism today. The Bible starts from exactly the opposite position. Humans are unique. We are the crown of God's creative work. We were made by God in His image. No other animal, no fish, no angel was made in the image of God. We are, you and me, male and female. We were made to rule the animals in this world. Now, there is a very important environmental theology in the scriptures. But it is the reverse of secular environmentalism. As humans, God holds us accountable for this world. And in Genesis 2, he says we're supposed to care for it. For the plants, for the animals, because we rule them. Because we are commissioned to do so by God himself. We've certainly made a mess of this world that God commissioned us to rule. By our sinfulness, we have made a mess of it. Environmentally and in every other way. But God expects us to manage this world as his rulers in this world. He placed us here. That's how he created it to work. Contrast the creation of the first man in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation of the first human being according to the ancient Mesopotamian tradition in Enuma Elish, which is one of the oldest creation accounts in all of human history, all right? And secular people will look to the Enuma Elish as an example of creation. Well, in the Mesopotamian tradition, the the recipe for creation starts like it does in Genesis 1 and 2 with the dust of the earth. Man Man is created out of the dust of the earth. But the second ingredient in the Mesopotamian tradition is where the difference comes out. 
the dust of the earth in the Mesopotamian tradition is mixed with the blood of the demon gods. It is a demon god who is killed for his treachery against the second generation of gods in their pantheon. The creation process says that that man was made out of the spit of gods. Contrast that with Genesis 1 and 2. We're made from the breath of the living God. What a difference. We're not made from the spit of the demons. We're made from the breath of the living God. And it contrasts two very different views of humanity then. Because in Enuma Elish, the ancient Mesopotamian tradition, humans were created to do the dirty work that gods didn't want to do. They were created to dig the ditches, literally, that gods didn't want to do. But in the Genesis account, we have a high view of humanity. Human beings, male and female, were created in the image of God to rule and manage his creative work. We are the crown and glory of that creative work. What a difference. And you see in our world today that the world is proclaiming that we are just animals. And the result of that philosophy is that all we do is just as useless in the end. What we do and what we are, our personalities, our accomplishments, are the result of chemicals and electrical synapses. That's all. That's going to lead to 200,000 hours of perfectly useless work. That's where it's going to go. But God tells us we're special. We were made in the image of God, each one of you. And we were made to rule. And that's our destiny. And destiny changes our perspective on what we do then. Everything we do has to be changed by that perspective. A man came to a construction site where stonemasons were working. The man said to the first one, what are you doing? And he said, I'm chipping stone. The man walked over to the second mason and he said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a wall. The man walked over to the third mason and he said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral. Which one of those three do you think had some sense of value to what he was doing? All doing the same work, right? Doing exactly the same thing in their jobs. Perspective made the whole difference. If I'm just chipping stone, it's useless. If I'm building a cathedral, wow! I'm important. You see the difference? You and I are placed here on this earth. We're not just chipping stones. We're building the kingdom of God. This is an eternal perspective. Everything that is a part of building that kingdom has value. It's important. We're significant. Even if I'm just chipping stone, I'm significant. What a difference in perspective. So we were made by God to rule the world, and we start with that perspective, that every one of us is created in the image of God to rule. 
to do something significant. Secondly, then, Jesus recovers by the cross our right to rule. Verse 8, the second half, we start out with, But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, that is, to man. The him in verse 8 is still us. It's still humans that the author of Hebrews is talking about. God placed all things under the authority of this world. All things under our authority in this world. But do you actually see that? Is that what we see when we look around? We don't see all things under our authority, do we? Just try planting a garden. Or getting a dog to walk beside you in in an appropriate and polite way. Right? We don't see this world as if we are the rulers. The reality is that we don't see all things under subjection to us. We don't see this, this world ranked under our authority as kings and queens. When we look around, we see a mess. We see constant trouble and turmoil. Animals like lions or tigers or bears would kill us if given the chance. Right? We see a world of violence, a world of rebellion. Stephen Hawking told a computer convention that computer viruses represent the only life form wholly created by humans. And then he said, I think it says something that the only form of life that we have created so far is purely destructive. Talk about creating life in our own image. (laughs) Well, aside from the fact that you have to question whether computer viruses are a human life form, (laughs) his point is well taken. You look around and and the world is a mess. And we have only ourselves to blame. Violence, destruction, that's man's legacy. Why? Well, as Christians, we have an answer, don't we? The reason for that is sin. Our legacy is a legacy of violence because of sin. We have messed up this world because of sin. That's not God's deal, that's ours. We messed it up. The entire universe has been plunged into destruction and violence because of man's sin. Man created by God to rule this world chose to rebel against God as the supreme ruler and so this world has been plunged into its current existence built upon the principle of kill or be killed. God didn't do that, man did. And that's why we're not able to rule this world effectively. That's why lions would kill you to eat you if they had the chance. Because of sin. Because we humans sinned. Adam sinned ultimately. And it's also why we kill and destroy one another. The world is a mess because man sinned. So when he starts out in verse 8, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to man, he's saying, look at the reality. It's a mess. Christianity says that we were made by God to rule this world. We made a mess of this world. We do not see ourselves as rulers of this world now because this world is in total rebellion against God because of sin. But, the author, don't you like these buts? Verse 9, but we do see him. Now the him changes. 
the him is now the representative man, Jesus Christ. We do see him, capital H, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see him. He entered our world. He came into this world And he was made for a short time lower than the angels. He became the son of man because that's where we lived. And he died a cruel death and after suffering death he is crowned with glory and honor. He died for us all so that we might live with him. So we see Jesus and we see Jesus and when we see Jesus we see our future. A new world is coming. And we will rule with Jesus that new world. Romans 8. That should say Romans 8, because it is Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Life's tough now. No comparison to what's going to come. The creation, the entire creation, the cosmos, waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. This universe is waiting for what we will become. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choices, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He goes on to say in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans for the day when we will become who we should become in Jesus Christ and the new world. It's all groaning, all a struggle right now. But the day is coming when he will reveal his glory in us and the whole creation will experience that glorification process too. It's called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it lasts forever, forever, no end. And we rule as God intended us to do. Now, notice that the author of Hebrews repeats the phrase that that Jesus became a little lower than the angels because we were a little lower than the angels for a short time. But in the coming world... It is not angels who will rule, it is humans. In fact, the Bible tells us that we will actually rule the angels. We will judge the angels. Jesus came to recover then our role in this cosmos. We will be greater than the angels one day because we were made in the image of God and Jesus came to redeem this cosmos and restore us as God's image bearers to our rightful place as rulers in this cosmos. So the argument of Hebrews is that Jesus entered our world so that we could enter his world. Anders Nygren in his book Eros and Agape says that, the spirit, that, that you can summarize spiritual ideas, everybody's in two categories. There's either Eros spirituality, there are just two spiritualities down through history. Says there's Eros spirituality and there's Agape spirituality. In Eros spirituality, it's self-love. It's finding your fulfillment in yourself. Look inside yourself. Now you can describe that religiously in a whole bunch of ways, but they all fit under that category, he says. 
The ancient Gnostics, for example, it was all about self-fulfillment. Look inside yourself. Find the inner Christ. Find the inner you. Self-fulfillment. And it's all about ourselves reaching and becoming God or reaching up to God in some way. All right? So man wants to find the answers inside himself. He's trying to reach God or find God or become God by looking inside himself. He tries to climb upward through self-love. The problem with that spirituality, you can name the religion, it doesn't matter. The problem with that spirituality, he says, is that it ultimately ends up trying to control other people. Why? Because my love has to be fulfilled, so therefore you exist to meet my need, and I begin to control you. And it's the reason why marriages break down. It's the reason why families break apart. It's the reason why there's wars and all that. Because we're trying to meet our needs. It is self-love. And inevitably, it breaks down because we try to control everyone else around us to make ourselves fulfilled. But God's love is agape love. We can never reach God, but God can reach us. See the difference? God is entering our world. God comes downward. God interjects himself into our lives. And God's love reaches us and fills us with his significance. And then that frees us actually to love others as God loves them. Instead of self-fulfillment, we find our significance in him. We find fulfillment in God so our emptiness is now filled with His love and we can love others like He loves us and it's the key to life. David Wells, commenting on this principle, writes, Eros is the projection of the human spirit into eternity, the immortalizing of its own impulses. Agape is the intrusion of eternity into the fabric of life, coming not from below but from above. Eros is human love reaching up. Agape is divine love. God intrudes. God breaks in. And he says, you'll find your significance in me. You will learn to love only when you experience my love. And you begin to love others like I love them. Instead of self-love, we find our significance in God's love intruding into our lives. Now that's a powerful concept. And when you understand it, those two spiritualities are diametrically opposed to one another. The world tries to find its fulfillment in self and makes a mess of life. You exist to fill my need. That's eros, spirituality. And we apply that to the sacred, then God exists to meet my need. Does God exist to meet your need? No, he does not exist to meet your need. He chooses to enter your world, but he does not exist to meet your need. Church does not exist to meet your need. God does not exist to meet your need. You see, the difference... The only way we can be restored to a rightful place in God's cosmos is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. He died to redeem us. He died in our place to save us. And when we place our faith in him, we find significance in him. And now we can live the way he wants us to live. And everything we do takes on significance because we are now destined by his grace and his love reaching into our lives. We are filled and no longer empty, and we're destined to rule. 
Author and speaker Ravi Zacharias tells a story about a woman in his radio audience who wrote to him to invite him to visit her if he could before she died. One day when he was in her home city on his travels along with his wife, he went to visit her. The woman was suffering from AIDS and by that time she was very near death. She had come there two years ago knowing, she had come home two years ago knowing that she was dying from AIDS. She hungered for something more than she had found in all of the things she'd experienced in life. She'd tried it all. But now, at home, she had found Christ. She'd put her faith in Jesus Christ. And she came there to die, but she was looking for more teaching on his great love. And when Ravi and his wife walked into her apartment, she was absolutely surprised. He said he would never forget her expression. Her mom and her dad stood next to her with a friend. She looked like a bag of bones, he said, a pathetic sight. She muttered words of gratitude that we had come. We spoke with her and prayed with her, he said. When he turned to leave, he noticed there was a book on the table beside her that she was reading when she had the strength to do so. And the book was by theologian R.C. Sproul, and it was The Hunger for Significance. The Hunger for Significance. It's all about finding your significance, your value in Him. In her loneliest moment, Ravi Zacharias says, her greatest hunger was being filled, her hunger for significance. That's what our faith in Christ can do. People are able to endure life's unavoidable passages, and today she is with her Lord forever. That, my friends, is what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. In the deepest, darkest struggles of this life, we will find our truest significance, not in self-love, but in God's love that sent His Son to enter this world, to be lower than the angels, to enter our struggles, and to die so that we might live in His kingdom forever. To restore us as men and women to the place he designed us to be. Think of the end of the world. Some people don't want to think about that, but it's coming, the end of this existence. For some, the idea that humanity could someday be wiped out by a nuclear holocaust or a doomsday virus or an environmental catastrophe, mm-hmm. that's not hard to imagine for many. In fact, they're already thinking about how to keep that from happening. And somehow, after the unthinkable happens, we have to find a way to resurrect humanity. That makes sense, right? Enter comedian Stephen Colbert, host of Comedy Central's The Colbert Report. The man has DNA, and someone thinks his DNA is the perfect seed for a new humanity. In the fall of 2008... Colbert's DNA was digitized and sent to the International Space Station to be kept in a time capsule. The courier for the DNA was video game tycoon Richard Garriott, who spent 10 days in space in October of 2008 as a space tourist. 
In a statement, Gary ought to explain, in the unlikely event that earth and humanity are destroyed, mankind can be resurrected with Stephen Colbert's DNA. Is there a better person for us to turn to for this high-level responsibility? I've never watched the show. But, uh, yeah, there is a better person. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm not interested in being resurrected as Stephen Colbert's DNA. But Jesus Christ, his DNA, yeah. And I will. See, that's what he's saying here. He's the seed DNA for the new humanity. And in Jesus Christ... We all have it to live forever. Have you trusted him as your Savior? Father, I pray that everyone in this room has trusted your Son as their Savior because we will live forever resurrected in his power and reborn as the people you wanted us to be in the first place, forever honoring you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.